0: Video games. How they're made. The people who make them. The stories behind it all. You're listening to Random Access Memories. By Ron's Pies. Enjoy the show. What do you think of when you hear the phrase a video game? What is the first game you think of? What is the essence of video games? The simplest, most recognizable, most quintessential form? I think most people, even if they're not into video games, have the same answer that I do. They can hear the music in their mind. They can see the pixels in their imagination. That game is Super Mario Bros. It's the game. It's gaming distilled into its purest form, 2D platforming bliss with one of the most iconic characters in all of entertainment. Two buttons, one D-pad, and yet still just as fun as it was when it came out 35 years ago. Even today, in 2020, Super Mario Bros. still lands at number six in the top 10 best-selling games of all time, and that's excluding all of its remakes and re-releases. So not only was it revolutionary, it was extremely popular too. So popular, in fact, that Super Mario Bros. and the man behind it may have not only saved Nintendo and put it on the map in Europe and North America, they may have saved video games altogether. And that was still just the beginning of Shigeru Miyamoto's story being etched into entertainment legend. Welcome to Random Access Memories, a gaming podcast dedicated to the stories behind video games. This podcast is an in depth look at a variety of the different franchises, developers, and studios around the world that form the greatest entertainment medium in the world. History, conversations, fun facts about franchises you thought you knew everything about this is Random Access Memories. Random Access Memories is a podcast produced by Ron's Pies, a YouTube channel dedicated to in depth looks at video games. If you like the podcast, please follow the show on your podcast podcast distribution platform of choice. Leave a positive review and subscribe to the channel. With that, please enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Random Access Memories and part 2 of our Shigeru Miyamoto biography. I am your host, Wade Ronspies, and I'm actually flying solo this time. Keegan, my illustrious co-host, has been absolutely swamped with school and his actual job, and I was a bit on a I was on a bit of a weird schedule this week, so I'm all you get this time. And I also want to take this opportunity of the intro to address the recent absence of episodes in the past couple of weeks. I was feeling pretty under the weather and I was actually displaying some pretty COVID-like symptoms. And as someone who has been hospitalized for asthma in the past, I wanted to monitor my condition and make absolutely sure I was feeling better before I started working at 100% again. So please forgive the absence, but I'm sure you understand considering the circumstances of the world and specifically the United States. And I'm in the process of moving, so I've been doing a lot of research for that and for other projects, and, well, that's just another excuse, isn't it? Again, sorry for the absence, but we should be business as usual from here on until the end of the season. Keyword, should. Anyway. When we left off last time, Miyamoto and his team at Nintendo R&D 4 had just released Excite Bike and Devil World in Japan following the release of the Famicom in 1983 and Mario Bros. in arcades earlier that same year. But despite the success of Nintendo and its Famicom in Japan in the following months, the video game market was at a turning point elsewhere in the world. Following an abundance of terrible video game cash-ins and overinvestment from Wall Street, the video game market in America had completely crashed. For context, the Atari 20, the Atari released in 1977, sold 30 million units before it was discontinued in 1992. The Atari 5200, its supposed successor, released in 1982, only sold about 1.5 million units before being discontinued just two years later in 1984. If Nintendo was going to break through the crash and reinvigorate the video game market in North America, it was going to need something special. Not just a special console, but special games to sell that console. Miyamoto was going to have to flex all of his creative muscles to make something undeniably great and appealing to the American market. Miyamoto settled on making a game that took all of him and his team's experience into consideration. A combination of all the ideas, technology, and expertise they had cultivated since Miyamoto joined Nintendo in 1977. The scrolling technology from Excitebike and Devil World, with the character, charisma, and lovable simplicity of Donkey Kong. Despite the small team's ambition and high stakes of the operation, the goal, at the end of the day, was simplicity. This was going to be a game that anyone in the world could look at and want to play, and that would be a hard thing to accomplish with tons of complex systems and overwhelming visuals. And they needed the game out by holiday 1985, which was the main reason they needed to keep things simple and clean. But why Mario? Why Super Mario? Miyamoto and his team could have easily created all new characters and ideas for this new game, but it was actually Takashi Tezuka, a frequent collaborator with Miyamoto, who suggested the game feature Mario after the success of Mario Bros. and Arcades. Tezuka joined Nintendo in 1984, and despite not even knowing what Pac-Man was before he had joined, he'd go on to prove to be an incredibly valuable ally to Shigeru Miyamoto and was essentially his right-hand man in business until 2013, when Tezuka was promoted to Senior Officer at Nintendo. As for the super part in Super Mario Bros, the development team was experimenting with larger character sizes after designing the levels on graphing paper for a smaller Mario first. They thought it was fun to control a larger sized Mario, but they knew it only had appeal if the player knew what it was like to be a smaller Mario first. So, they figured it would be a fun idea to make a power-up to let Mario change size. As for why that power-up was a mushroom, that part was inspired by Japanese folklore and stories that involved people wandering into magical forests and transforming after eating mushrooms. A super mushroom, maybe. And thus, both Super Mario and the Mushroom Kingdom were born. Of course, Super Mario Bros. isn't complete without its iconic soundtrack, composed by the legendary Koji Kondo, who had been composing music for Nintendo since 1983, and has been involved in nearly every single Nintendo game since then. Even for people who maybe haven't picked up a controller since 1985, that iconic overworld theme still plays in their head to this day, a testament to the catchiness and talent of Koji Kondo's composing. Or it could be because the NES had limited memory, so the music that was there had to be played on a relatively short loop, thus making it easy to become stuck in your head. Super Mario Bros. came out in Fall 1985 in Japan and North America, and coincided with the North American launch of the Nintendo Entertainment System, which was launched a couple months earlier. It was met with immediate critical and commercial success. On the NES alone, counting re-releases and bundles, Super Mario Bros. sold over 40 million copies in its lifetime, a staggering figure even in today's gaming market. For reference, Red Dead Redemption 2, released in 2018, was the biggest game of that year by far, and two years later, it has sold about 32 million copies on three different platforms. Nintendo was steadily growing in the early 80s, but this was a huge, huge boost for them. A similar trajectory, History has happened to studios and publishers all over the industry, but within months, Nintendo went from a quirky Japanese business struggling to establish a foothold in the west, to the Disney of video games. And they did it with Shigeru Miyamoto as the creative force behind it all, and in an age where arcades in America were going dark and development studios were shutting down left and right. Also in 1985, Miyamoto produced something arguably more important than Super Mario Bros. He became a father. He and his wife, Yasuko Miyamoto, had a son in 1985 and a daughter two years later in 1987. So from here on, he wasn't just the most hardworking man in video games, he was also a father and husband. But little is known about his family. Hell, even the man himself has always shied away from any sort of TV representation. Miyamoto has even said that more foreigners recognize and approach him than local Japanese fans. Anyway, almost immediately following the incredible success of Super Mario Bros., Miyamoto went to work on a sequel, Super Mario Bros. 2. Except, this isn't the Super Mario Bros. 2 that you and I may know of when we speak of Mario 2. To us, we know it as Super Mario Bros. The Lost Levels and at the Lost Levels, because it was never released internationally until 2007. The reason it never came out stateside is because Nintendo of America actually decided it was too difficult for Western audiences, and Nintendo's HQ in Japan and Miyamoto had nothing to do with that decision. In fact, our Super Mario Bros. 2 is a reskin of a Japanese game called Doki Doki Panic, And in Japan, our version of Mario 2 is known as Super Mario Bros. USA. Meanwhile, or should I say earlier in Miyamoto Land, the same team behind Super Mario Bros. was making another game on the side at the exact same time. But rather than a side-scrolling platformer, this would be a top-down adventure game. This was an all-new adventure in an all-new fantasy world inspired by Shigeru Miyamoto's adventures as a young boy in the wilderness outside of his hometown by Kyoto, Japan. An adventure that would replicate the same childlike feeling of excited curiosity that Miyamoto felt when he ventured into that deep, dark cave with nothing but a gaslit lantern in hand. But this game would still share some concepts with its development partner, Super Mario Bros a young male protagonist, a damsel in distress, a beastly villain, and an iconic soundtrack composed by Koji Kondo. Miyamoto thought it would be fun to give the player the chance to explore and discover things at their own pace, an open world filled with secrets, dungeons, and items. Of course, it goes without saying that the game I'm describing is the one and only Legend of Zelda. The origin of one of, if not the most critically acclaimed franchises in all of entertainment, with a series average Metacritic score of 91, AND it was developed at the same time as another game-changing masterpiece. It seems as though Miyamoto was simply a man filled to the brim with great ideas, and once he had the chance to realize those ideas, it all came bursting out at once. In the years following Super Mario Bros. and The Legend of Zelda, Miyamoto helped Nintendo develop more of gaming's greatest games. Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link, Mother, which we know as Earthbound Beginnings in the US, and he directed the absolutely incredible Super Mario Bros. 3, which came out in 1989. Following Super Mario Bros. 3, Nintendo underwent some restructuring. Nintendo R&D4, Miyamoto's team, merged with other teams within Nintendo, creating a super team called Nintendo EAD, Nintendo Entertainment Analysis and Development. And Miyamoto proved himself so much in the years leading up to Nintendo EAD's formation, he was chosen as the head of the game development department within EAD. However, years of intense work had taken their toll on Miyamoto. After the release of Super Mario Bros. 3, Miyamoto had stated that he was dealing with stress-related heart issues during that time. Thankfully though, due to his more administrative role within Nintendo, the workload placed on Miyamoto would be drastically reduced. He'd pretty much get to fulfill one of his initial purposes at Nintendo with all of the pluses and none of the drawbacks, being a game designer and steering the creative direction of Nintendo's games. And he'd get to do it for a brand new generation for Nintendo the Super Nintendo generation. He'd still go on to personally direct projects from that point on, but his role within Nintendo was mostly as a producer, the guy who gave the green light to specific projects within the company. Whatever Nintendo EAD was cooking up, they needed Miyamoto's approval or personal touch before it could hit the market. So even if Miyamoto wasn't listed as a director or designer on one specific project, you can rest assured that Miyamoto had some part in it, one way or another. During this time, Miyamoto's longtime collaborator, Takashi Tezuka, really took the spotlight as a driving creative force at Nintendo. Miyamoto produced legendary games like Super Mario World, Yoshi's Island, and The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past, and Link's Awakening but it was Tezuka who directed those four projects. This leads me to a point I want to make abundantly clear. While Shigeru Miyamoto is undoubtedly a genius and a revolutionary innovator for his time, he didn't do it all alone. Steve Jobs had Steve Wozniak, Bill Gates had Paul Allen, and Shigeru Miyamoto had Takashi Tezuka and eventually Satoru Iwata. Miyamoto absolutely deserves credit for his work in the Super Nintendo era of Nintendo, but it's important to note that there are other people who worked on those games who were equally as important. Anyway, many consider the 90s to be the golden age of Nintendo, and the Super Nintendo to be the best console of all time. During this time, Nintendo was experimenting heavily with 3D technology with the Super FX chip, most notably utilized in Star Fox, which Miyamoto produced. During this time, Miyamoto was producing legendary games like F-Zero, Super Mario Kart, Pilot wings, working on art, characters, and assisting with design and creative direction, all while taking note of the advancements being made in video game technology. But before he could fully realize those ambitions, Miyamoto co-produced a game in 1994 alongside someone else who would also become a staple name within Nintendo, Satoru Iwata. The game, which was Kirby's dream course, isn't important. I mean, the game is good, it's just that's not the important part of this story. Iwata was a programmer at HAL Laboratory, the creators of Kirby, and he also worked on games like Balloon Fight and Earthbound. Iwata proved himself to be a pretty brilliant programmer. He wrote a pretty genius compression algorithm and helped create rudimentary parallax scrolling for a Formula 1 game on Famicom, hardware that didn't support that kind of graphical intensity. In fact, Iwata's compression algorithm would come in major handy later on when Game Freak was developing Pokemon Gold and Silver. That algorithm pretty much saved that game, actually. Iwata was promoted to president of HAL Laboratory in 1993, and later assisted Nintendo EAD as producer, which is how he met and eventually worked with Shigeru Miyamoto, and so began a beautiful working relationship that lasted until Iwata's unfortunate passing in 2015. 1996 was a game-changing year in the gaming industry. After all, it's the year I was born. But in all seriousness, it's the year the Nintendo 64 came out and revolutionized the concept of 3D gaming forever. It was also the first year since 1989 that Miyamoto himself would take on directing responsibilities, just as he once did during Nintendo's early years as a game company. And if Miyamoto was taking the helm, there must have been a damn good reason. And that reason was to make a new Mario game for Nintendo's new system, a launch game inspired by one of his favorite projects that he produced on the Super Nintendo in 1993, Star Fox. I didn't really touch on Star Fox when I was kind of glossing over that area, and I'm gonna fix that now. Miyamoto loved Star Fox, and still does for the record, but he had a real emotional attachment to that project after helping develop the game's iconic cast of characters and story concepts. But what impressed him the most about Star Fox was its rudimentary 3D graphics. Star Fox utilized something called the Super FX chip inside the cartridge, which enabled the game to use very simple vector based 3D rendering. Basically, the game was a sort of faux 3D, and the graphics were made up of simple lines and polygons. But that was enough to give Miyamoto some serious ideas about the future of gaming. Ideas that should have been obvious in hindsight. 3D games weren't a new concept as of 1996, the Sony Playstation and the Sega Saturn came out in 1994 after all. But no one had seen anything like what Miyamoto was going to do in 1996. Super Mario 64. Pre-production for Mario 64 began in 1993, with official development beginning one year later in September 1994. The first thing Miyamoto's team was tasked with was making a fully functioning camera that would operate in a 3D space. They spent months and months making it work. After all, nothing like this had ever been done before. There was no precedent or previous work to learn from. There were plans to make it an isometric 3D platformer, but Miyamoto and his team made the ambitious decision to give the player a fully controllable camera and wide-open environments. There were tons of small design elements that went into this Mario game to make it easy for players to experience a fully 3D platformer but from Miyamoto's perspective, he saw the project like one big, interactive 3D animated cartoon. He wanted to squeeze as much personality as he possibly could into this project, and even incorporated some ideas from his real-life experiences. Apparently, Mario 64's boos were inspired by Takashi Tezuka's wife, who was typically considered to be shy and timid, but one day exploded with rage while expressing her displeasure with Tezuka spending all his time at the office. Super Mario 64 was an ambitious project. Miyamoto wanted this game to be big. So big, in fact, that he felt they needed to delay the game in order for the team to meet his vision. Nintendo of America recognized the weight of Mario 64 and what a delay would mean, so the Nintendo 64 was delayed too. Basically, the Nintendo 64 was a launch console for Super Mario 64. At least, that's how Nintendo saw it in 1995 when it was delayed. Miyamoto asked, and Hiroshi Yamauchi, the traditionally hard-ass of a boss, complied, quote, unconditionally with Miyamoto's request to delay. In fact, the controller for the Nintendo 64 was designed in part by Miyamoto himself specifically to be purpose-built for Super Mario 64. Nintendo knew this game was something special to the point where one game influenced the hardware for an entire console generation. Imagine if Sony completely redesigned the PlayStation controller to fit the Demon Souls remake on PS5. That would be absolutely insane. And that's exactly what Nintendo did for Super Mario 64. Super Mario 64 and the Nintendo 64 were released in Japan on June 23rd, 1996, one day before my birthday, and in North America on September 29th, 1996. And within an instant, video games were changed forever. Every single gamer and developer looked at Mario 64 and saw that nothing would ever be the same again. Ever. The world's perception of what a game could be was changed instantly. Everyone who popped that cartridge into their Nintendo 64 instantly had their minds blown, and then had a great time triple jumping, ground pounding, and somersaulting all over the Mushroom Kingdom, fully realized in three-dimensional space. Mario 64 set the template for what a 3D game is. It was the goalpost that every single studio would attempt to reach. Every single game you play today that's in 3D owes its very existence to Mario 64. Everything from its immediate competitors like *Spiral: the Dragon, to modern innovators like The Last of Us Part II. We wouldn't play 3D games the way we do if it wasn't for Super Mario 64, and it's as simple as that. Shigeru Miyamoto gave us icons like Mario, Donkey Kong, Link, Zelda, Fox, and more, but perhaps his greatest contribution to the world of gaming was his role as director of Super Mario 64. And Mario 64 isn't just a revolutionary game. It's also a damn good one. And that's what makes a game truly revolutionary. It's not enough to simply have a good idea and nothing more. There has to be a real, tangible game there too. Super Mario 64 is still considered to be a favorite among the 3D Mario games, even after fantastic entries like Super Mario Galaxy and Super Mario Odyssey. And personally, Super Mario Galaxy is my favorite. Miyamoto saved Nintendo, possibly saved gaming in North America, and on his return to directing, he completely changed his industry. And after Super Mario 64, he wouldn't direct another project for another 20 years, returning for Star Fox Zero in 2016. Miyamoto would continue to produce, supervise, and assist with absolutely legendary projects for Nintendo. There was another revolutionary game made by Nintendo for the 64 in that era, The Legend of Zelda, Ocarina of Time. Ocarina of Time was to adventure games like Halo was to shooters. They existed beforehand, but nothing like this, not in 3D and not on this scale. Ocarina of Time was actually developed by a variety of different directors, but with Miyamoto at the top of it all. He was never officially credited as a game director for Ocarina of Time, but many say he was as close as you could possibly be to being one, so close was his involvement. He was even the one who suggested that Link should have a horse, creating a new standard mechanic for the series and some of the game's most iconic imagery. So if you love Epona, you have Miyamoto to thank. Ocarina of Time wasn't as revolutionary as Mario 64, but then again, very few games are. Nonetheless, Ocarina of Time was the second revolutionary in games supervised by Miyamoto within two years. If his name wasn't etched into gaming legend already, it certainly was now. He could have retired then and there, and his talent and genius wouldn't have been questioned one bit but he kept going. He kept working as a producer and supervisor. Mario Kart 64, F-Zero X, Mario Party, Kirby 64, Zelda Majora's Mask, Paper Mario, and more throughout the late 90s and early 2000s. It was at this time, around the launch of the Nintendo GameCube, that Miyamoto's role within Nintendo became a bit more subtle. He wasn't leading projects, but he was still chipping in and giving his approval and the occasional idea or two to each of Nintendo EAD's projects. And Miyamoto didn't just help with production solely at Nintendo EAD. He also often had a say in tons of games that Nintendo published or authorized for release on Nintendo platforms, such as Star Wars Shadows of the Empire developed by LucasArts. Apparently, Miyamoto wasn't impressed, even asking the game's art director, quote, "...do you not take pride in your work?" He didn't mean it as an insult. He was genuinely concerned as to why the game looked the way it did admittedly not understanding Western art styles, which tend to shoot for realism rather than style. On May 24th, 2002, Hiroshi Yamauchi retired. The president of Nintendo since 1949, the man who hired Miyamoto and treated him with incredible respect, stepped down from the company. Considering Miyamoto's reputation within Nintendo was at an all-time high at that point, I don't think it would have been crazy to assume that Miyamoto was in the running to succeed Yamauchi as president. But here's the thing about Miyamoto. This is the guy who skipped class in college to play the banjo in underground clubs. This is the man who was the first artist hired at Nintendo. This is the man who explored forests and caves as a child. Miyamoto is an artist, not a businessman, and I think that's pretty clear based on what we know about him and his personal life. Instead, the role of president went to Miyamoto's friend and collaborator Satoru Iwata, the first man outside of the Yamauchi family to become president of Nintendo. Unlike Yamauchi and Miyamoto, Iwata was a programmer. He didn't just have ideas for games, he was the person behind the computer turning ideas into reality. Iwata is a legendary figure in his own right, just as Miyamoto is. It was Iwata that ushered in a new era for Nintendo, one where its creators were also its public image. Iwata was the one on stage at E3, and Miyamoto followed suit. Iwata was a game developer and he was a game lover, so he knew how to appeal directly to a new generation raised from birth playing Nintendo's games. Oh my business card. I am a corporate president. In my mind, I am a game developer, but in my heart, I am a gamer. Meanwhile, Miyamoto did what he always did, produce and provide support for all of Nintendo EAD's projects, including ones for innovative hardware like the upcoming Nintendo DS and Wii. Over the years following the GameCube's release, Miyamoto's role within Nintendo EAD's development processes began a day crescendo. His game credits mostly became General Producer and Supervisor, which I think were just fancy ways of saying he pitches in with ideas every now and then and makes sure the games meet his standards. Still important stuff though, considering he's pretty much the most important man in all of gaming. Following Satoru Iwata's passing in 2015, Miyamoto was given the role of Creative Fellow, which is the title he has today within Nintendo. Some of the names Miyamoto created are being helmed by different faces. Mario is helmed by Yoshiaki Koizumi, Zelda by Eiji Aonuma, who I've met in person, and I still can't believe it either. But beyond that, him stepping aside a bit has also opened up Nintendo to a bevy of new, talented leadership and new, iconic or newly emerging IP for Nintendo. Splatoon, Animal Crossing, Arms, Fire Emblem, Bayonetta, Xenoblade, and more. And I know a couple of those have been around for a while, but some of those franchises never really hit their stride until the 2010s or sooner. Miyamoto's contribution to gaming is immeasurable. It's just a shame that we don't know more about the man himself. But he likes it that way. He's a humble man, as evident in his frequent joke that he was at one point the best game designer in the world in an age where there were none. Shigeru Miyamoto is a talented musician, and a talented artist. After all, he was the first one Nintendo ever hired. He loves measuring things. It's been said in interviews that he always has measuring tape on him, and he makes it a hobby to guess the dimensions of random objects in rooms, much to the humor of the people around him. He loves dogs, which served as the inspiration for Nintendogs on DS. He likes riding bicycles, but he's actually prohibited by Nintendo from riding one to work in case he gets in an accident. He loves to smile, and he loves making other people smile. In fact, it's almost weird to see him when he's not smiling, the same way it's weird to see your dad cry. It's unclear what kind of hardships he has faced in his life. It's unclear what has made him angry and what has made him sad. We don't know what kind of pain Miyamoto could be hiding underneath that smile or if there is any pain to begin with. But if there's one thing we do know, it's that Shigeru Miyamoto loves video games and that this industry wouldn't be the same without him and that it may not even exist at all today without him. If you love video games, you know his name, or at least you should. He's probably made you smile and his name is Shigeru Miyamoto. And that's that for this episode and this series of Random Access Memories. Again, apologies, this took so long to publish, but again, I was displaying some troubling symptoms, and I hope you enjoyed this episode enough to make up for any lost time. As for the next episode, you'll just have to wait and find out what that's about for yourself. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Random Access Memories, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you want more, check out our previous episodes and or subscribe to the show on the podcast platform of your choice. This podcast was produced by Ron's Pies on YouTube, so please check the channel out, subscribe, and share the show. You can follow me on Twitter, at WadeLikesPie, and Keegan, at Key underscore Gan underscore Gin. See you next time.